In Parashat Hazinu, there is a pasuk that always captures my attention. Hatzur tamim paalo, kichal drachav mishpat, avel, sharhu, a kind of short staccato repetition of four phrases, all of which, uh, all of which are making uh, a similar point. God's work is perfect. All his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness, of integrity. There's no, there's no iniquity. He is righteous and upright. Commentaries have, as of course this is poetry, commentaries have various interpretations of what exactly the, the point of this Pasuk is and how it relates to the broader context of the Shira of Hazinu. In particular, we've discussed in the past a fascinating debate beginning with the, the Gaonim about the, a, a theological slash liturgical debate that the Talmud talks about a blessing called Birchas Avel that was recited in Birchas Mazon. I don't think it's customary to say it today, but there's a Birchas Avel that is Birchas Avel that was commonly rec- was recited as part as an addition to Birchas Mazon in a house of mourning. And we say, it's a kind of tzidu kadin, we accept God's justice, and we say, we say, Kael MS, the Gemara says, Dayan MS, Shofei Tzedek, he's, uh, he's a righteous judge. And it says, uh, in the text of the Talmud that we have, it says, He takes souls with justice. We accept that everything God does is with justice. So the Gaonim, the Gaonim made a very provocative philosophical point. They said, that you should strike out that phrase, you should strike it out, because there's a, there's a theological discussion in the Talmud, whether we say, one opinion says that the starting point of the Talmud is, there is no suffering without sin, and no death without, without sin. The Talmud goes back and forth in a Talmudic dialogue, and eventually rejects that. The Talmud seems to conclude, yesh yisurin yesh that the, the Talmud seems to conclude that, uh, as, a, that the, as a matter of theology, it's not so simple. Sometimes there is death without sin. So the Gaonim said, now let us say, we can say that uh, we, we, have no, we have no conviction that every death is part of Mishpat. The world is not so simple. God's uh, providence is not that simple. The Balitosvus, the, the French-German scholars of the medieval period, did not like this. They said, they, they took a more conservative approach. They said, it's a Talmudic text. You can't just strike out words because you have a theological objection. And anyway, they said, like, what do you mean God God doesn't act justly? That, that's a, a fundamental belief of Judaism. Hatsur tamim palo, kichal mishpat. The Gonim can't argue, they're not going to erase the Pasuk. It says, kichal mishpat. What about the Gemara that says, yesh misa yesh Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll have to explain that that means it's not a simple question of avon. There are, there are deeper and more complicated uh, designs that God has. It's not simply a black and white sin, death, sin, punishment. It's a suffering. It's more complicated. But there has to be some kind of mishpat. There has to be some kind of system. That's an entire pasuk. Yep. So we've, we've discussed this debate in the past. Tonight, I want to focus on a different interpretation of this pasuk, a different... Uh, little bit of exegesis in this Pasuk, and the, the, the theme of our talk tonight is actually going to tie in closely to what we discussed last week, the, 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 the general theme of collective punishment, but we'll approach it from a different perspective tonight. I remember from my childhood, many years ago, 
a, an interpretation of this Pasuk. I, I, I spent a while looking for it today, and a number of contemporary writers attribute it to Rav Yisrael Salanter, the great uh, Talmudist and ethicist, founder of the Muslim movement. None of them quote an actual source where Rav Yisrael Salanter is, uh, expressed this thought. So I, I don't have anything like an authoritative source for this. I found a number of different websites that quote varying versions of the various versions of the idea. And I remember it vaguely from my youth in the name of someone, some, some, some great Jewish thinker. The idea is as follows, that God's justice, the Pasuk is telling us God's justice is different from the justice of a mortal king, a, a Melech Pasar Vadam. Melech Pasar Vadam, and not just a king, that's the halacha, that's how Sanhedrin works, that's how Bastin works. A person sins, we have to punish him, death, other punishment, whatever the punishment is, there will be collateral damage. You execute a person, his wife is a widow, Children are orphans. They, they're going to have a decided disadvantage in life, financially, the stigma of it, the, the, the social consequences. It's, they're going to suffer. They, they're not guilty. Even if, we're not, even if Basin isn't punishing them directly, but clearly executing the, the, the father, the husband, is going to have uh, grave effects on the rest of the family. We have no choice. That's the way justice works. We kill the offending party, we punish him, whatever it is. We, we can't, our hands are tied, we can't take into account the, the collateral damage that that will cause to innocent people. God's conduct is different. If there's anyone in the entire world who will suffer from the punishment he brings on the sinner, and he doesn't deserve, in his, in his relationship with God, he doesn't deserve that punishment, HaKadosh Baruch withholds the punishment, God acts perfectly without any iniquity at all. God will not punish the sinner if that will bring unjust, unfair suffering to somebody else. As I said, this, this general idea, that was one formulation of it. This, uh, this general idea is attributed in a number of formulations to Yisrael Salanter. Another version, they have Yisrael Salanter asking, Tzadik v'yasharhu, even in, in that fourth phrase itself, the fourth part of the Pasuk, Tzadik v'yashar hu, what's tzadik and what's yashar? Those sound like the same things as well. Yisrael Salanter said, because the, again, Melech Basar Vadam takes into account only the, only one, only the, only the tzadik, only whether it's right or wrong. I think he means, but yashar, whether the, yashar refers to the fallout, the secondary consequences. Only Akash Baruch Hu is able to take that into account as well, and so on. Now, Rishol Slanter is not explaining, so why, are the, why is this cleavage here? Why, why, why do we do this differently? If God's justice does take this into account, if God has so much mercy that he refuses to uh, impose punishment where, it'll have, where, it, where there'll be collateral damage to innocence, why don't we emulate God? Why aren't we commanded? We're not allowed to do that. Basin is not supposed to do that. So why, why if this is indeed the, the, the godly way to run the world, why don't we imitate God? Presumably, none of, none of these explanations of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter explain this point that clearly. The way I always understood this idea, the point was that it takes an unfathomable level of, uh, of understanding of the world and understanding of the consequences of, of every action and so on, the butterfly effect and all that. It takes, uh, it takes a godly intelligence and a, god, a godly omnipotence and omniscience to be able to calibrate all the punishments. God will find a way to punish the sinner. He'll do it in such a way and he'll balance everything out that uh, everyone, everyone will receive 
both uh, first-order effects and second-order effects of punishment and third-order effects exactly what they deserve. Basin can't do that. Basin is unable to, 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 to figure out how to punish people in such a way that everyone will receive all the knock-on effects exactly what they deserve. Basin just can't. Basin, human beings are limited by mortal capabilities, and, and they therefore have to use the crude instruments of punishment the will collateral effects. What can we do? We have no choice. God, in his great uh, wisdom and power, is able to do this, is able to run the world in, in an unfathomable way, in such a way that he can give everyone exactly what they deserve. Humans, unfortunately, can't. So we, therefore, have to issue punishments, impose punishments, even if there'll, unfortunately, be some, some collateral damage. I remember, when I was in Lakewood, we were talking, my colleagues and I, we were discussing a case I don't remember if this was an actual case that was brought to our attention or it was kind of a thought experiment, a fact pattern, as the lawyers say. We were, we were, we were amusing about a case of a fellow who's, uh, who sued for money that he owes. He's sued and based in, and, he, and he's a deadbeat, and he refuses to pay. Not, not, not necessarily even someone who's fallen on hard times, someone who simply is trying to uh, you know, get away with uh, stiffing his creditors, and the based in is ratcheting up the pressure on him. And they're considering one of their uh, more powerful tools, which is uh, public shaming, to issue some kind of seiruv, to issue some kind of public statement excoriating the person for, for uh, not being honest, for disobeying the Bastin, and so on. And someone appeals to the Bastin and says, look, you, know, you, you may be right, this fellow may be uh, acting unconscionably, he may be, uh, he may be uh, uh, a bad person. But he has children. He has a daughter in Shaduchim. Think of what this is going to do to her prospect if we plaster the town with signs that her father is a uh, scoundrel. So have, have Rahmanus on the, on the poor girl. So I think my colleagues and I were actually split what Basin should do going forward. I don't remember exactly what I thought or what my colleagues thought, but I think we were actually split. I think some felt, Ein Merachman Badin. I mean, that's the din. Like Rashal Islam just says, HaKash Baruch can work it out. Our hands are tied. The, the creditor has rights, and, and it's, it's the duty of the Basin to enforce Din, and the fact that this poor girl will suffer, even assuming she's not at fault at all, what are we going to do? We, we, we have no choice. We have to uphold the law. We have to uphold the rights of the, of the creditor. Other people said, I mean, you know, money's money, but this is a person's life you're talking about, and, 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 and you, you should have a little bit of Rachmanis. So that's what I want to discuss tonight, actually, for the, for the, remainder, of our, for the, for the remainder of our talk tonight. I want to discuss one area in Halacha, the, the primary area in halacha where this actually does come up, this question of collateral damage, we discussed last week a handful of cases where either in biblical cases, the story of Achan, who violated the harem of Yericho, the story of the, the seven children of Shaul, who were who, children and grandchildren of Shaul, who were executed by Davon Melech. Those were cases in Tanakh, cases where human beings may have carried out the sentence, but the there was divine involvement, God had mandated it, those were kind of irregular cases, the Gemara says about uh, Shoal's children, Mutav Shateakaros Achas Menatara, was some kind of harasha. We mentioned Aaron Idachas as well, there's a great controversy about Aaron Idachas, the, the city that's led astray after idols, whether the children are executed, that, that's a perfectly uh, standard halachic, uh, halachic discussion, but it's not practical. It was, according to one opinion, it never happened, certainly it's not practiced today. I want to discuss tonight one area in halacha where, where, again, maybe not today, today, in the 21st century, but for much of Jewish history, it was hotly debated. The, the legitimacy of a certain form of collective punishment was hotly debated. Kind of collateral damage. We, we, we were not trying to punish innocents. We were trying to apply pressure. We were trying to uh, 
we were trying to break the obstinacy, the obstinacy of someone who was <coughs> flouting the based in either committing sins or was uh, violating the based in of financial matters. And the question arose, the question arises, are we able to use his family as leverage? Can we impose various sanctions on his family as, grand, as uh, in the hope of, uh, of uh, forcing him to, to back down? And as we'll see, the, the, the Rabbi Shalantra's point is that Basin shall not, Rabbi point is that Basin shall not, uh, our Basin, we sometimes have to punish people, even though there'll be collateral, indirect damage to his family. We're going to discuss the question now, are there times where Basin actually directly punishes family with the, in, with the intent, with the motive of attempting to secure compliance by a family member? So this discussion begins with a ruling of the Gaonim. So we have a Gaonic ruling. It appears in a variety of sources. It appears in several different editions of the Chuvas HaGaonim. It is also cited by various medieval authorities in the name of the Gaonim. Luka Yosef, the Rivash, your later medieval authorities, 14th century medieval authorities in the name of the Gaonim. But more or less, the ruling goes as follows. It's attributed in several sources to Rav Paltavi Gaon, in some sources to other Gaonim. But the basic ruling is more or less uh, similar in all its different variations. The Gaonim were asked the kind of an open-ended question, explained to us the procedure of cherem, of the ban, excommunication. The ban, the cherem, is not really used today. In, again, in the 21st century, we don't really engage in excommunication. But for centuries, for many centuries, from Talmudic times down to the, as recently as a century or two ago, the ban, various flavors of the ban, nidoy, cherem, shamto, we're going to do, in a week, we're going to do Hatarat uh, and Dharam and Erev Rosh Hashanah, we're going we, we, we to refer to uh, a number of different terms for bans and, and uh, imprecations, including Nidui, Cherem, and Shamta, Nachash, the three, three different types of bans. There's an elaborate literature in, in the halakhic literature about the various forms of bans, which are more serious, which are escalations, which are earliest, earlier steps. And that, that's not our concern right now, all the different levels of bans. The, the point to understand is that the ban, in all its forms, was one of the most powerful and effective tools that Jewish communities and Batei Din had to enforce their, their will. People took bans very seriously, whether it was just the question of social ostracism, whether it was people believed in the spiritual consequences of being placed under the ban. Whatever it was, the ban was a, was a very, very powerful tool for enforcing compliance with the communal will, to the extent that when you read 19th century Svarim, you frequently see little footnotes saying, whenever, whenever the Mishnah Brura, the Akhrana mentioned the Cherem, the Ben, you'll see a little footnote uh, clearly directed at the censor saying, only relevant when the governments allowed bans. The governments of Europe apparently banned the ban in the 19th century. They, 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 did, not like, you know, they did not like the Jewish communities having this much power to be independent and, and, and autonomous and independent source of power. So the governments apparently, I'm not that familiar with the history, but it emerges from the Svarim, the governments of Europe were very, very uh, adamant in, in their refusal to, to, to tolerate the ban any further. So you find all these statements saying the ban is no longer relevant. And for one reason or another, for, for, for the governmental pressure or other reasons, the ban fell out of use. And today, you know, the, we don't really use bans as part of our, our tools, our repertoire. But they, Aren't they sometimes used for people who refuse to do it yet? Yeah, so, so they're, not, they're, not, they're not totally in disuse. A Basin will sometimes back up its, uh, its demands with a ban or with a ban equivalent. 
what, what a basin will do today typically is issue what we call a seruv, which is essentially a writ of contempt. A, a misarev is someone who refuses, who is non-compliant. A basin issues both in the context of gittin, of get refusers, as well as even in civil cases. The basin can issue a seruv. It's done rarely, but it's, it, when necessary, it's done. That's a, that's a kind of writ of contempt that the basin declares that so-and-so is in violation of the basin's orders. That used to be often routinely accompanied by the ban. That's one of the main places where the ban is discussed in the halacha, a basin that puts somebody under the ban for refusing to, to cooperate with the basin's orders. So t- today, but they didn't use different formulations to decide. They, they don't always issue the, a flat-out explicit statement that he's under the ban. When, when I was in Lakewood, the, the basin I was involved with, we used to issue language that said, we hereby declare that so-and-so is in violation of the orders of the basin, and the status of such a person is referenced in Shulchan Aruch and Simon Shin Lamadalad in Yordea, which is where the halachas of bans are discussed. We, we were kind of cagey about whether we were actually imposing a real ban or just telling you what we thought of the person and what status he deserved to have. We were, I think, deliberately uh, strategic ambiguity, I think, we used about whether we were actually placing him under the ban. I, I'm not so familiar with all the different language used by different din in other contexts, and there may, there may very well be some din that, that, that forthrightly and explicitly Use the ban today. So again, it, 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 not every based in uh, acknowledges the validity of the seru of other. I mean, there are some famous. Yeah, so there are jurisdictional questions, and, and, and even in the time of the Talmud, even in the time of the Postkim, a, a big, a big sub-section uh, of the literature of bans is people challenging the validity of bans and denying that the ban... Sometimes two people would get into a fight, and one of them would say, you have been, you have been disrespectful to me, I'm placing you under the ban, I'm, I'm a Talmud Chacham, who has the right to do that. He would say, Adarabah, your ban is unjustified, I place you under the ban for violating, uh, for insulting me. Then they would go to Bastin and try to adjudicate whose ban is valid, either of them, both of them. So th- th- there is a lot of literature about the, w- in the Talmud already and later authorities, when bans are valid, when they're not. You know, who has to, the Talmud itself has elaborate rules about who has to honor a ban. If it's a lower level Talmud, the, the ban is not binding vis-a-vis his Rebbe. It's only, it's only binding for those who are within his jurisdiction. It's not binding among a higher level. You know, like, like courts only have jurisdiction on those under their jurisdiction. So th- th- there are a lot of rules about about the jurisdictions of bands, which we're not going to get into tonight, the, the details of bands. But the, so the, the Gaonim had, were asked a kind of open-ended question in this tshuva, tell us about the band, tell us the procedures, you know, tell us how bands work, and, and give us some guidance about how we go about doing bands and what, and what they mean. So again, there are, several, there are several different versions with significant differences, omissions and variations of this basic tshuva. But what the, quoting, for example, from the Mukiyosif's version of the, of the tshuva, he says that we, we escalate through the various stages of the ban. Eventually, we, the, 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 final, the, the final, the nuclear version is, we say, we, we write as follows. We say, Ploni Gazrul Avdin, Vesirev Loeshkiach. So and so, we have issued an order. Sirev, that's the word Seirev, he has refused, he has not paid attention to us. Vechram Nuoso, we have put him in Cherem. As follows. Rules are, cannot join a minion. cannot join a zimun. loben. No one should circumcise his child, his, his boy. Nobody should bury his dead. Expel his children from school. Expel his wife from the synagogue.
until he accepts the, the orders of the basin. Now, these halachas are not of the Talmud. The Talmud has certain basic rules of what you're supposed to do to a menuda, certain if they overlap with Havelos to a certain extent, but there are certain types of ostracisms and, and mourning type uh, conduct that a, a menuda, a muhram, someone placed under the ban, the various forms of the ban is supposed to observe, but these are excessive. These, these things about uh, no mila, don't, we don't do bris mila for his children, we don't, we don't bury his dead, we expel his wife and children from schools and shuls, none of this is in the Talmud. But nevertheless, this was a ruling of the Gaonim that was in widespread, uh, that, was, that was widespread among the Rishonim. We have a variety of different references to this, to this ruling of the Gaonim. What, what's the attitude of the halachic tradition of, about this ruling? So Rabbi Yosef Karo, in, the, in his, in his Bedekabayas, in his Beis Yosef, his notes to his Beis Yosef, he writes, clearly he says, all these chumros, all these are chumros yuseros. These are not Talmudic. The, these are clearly, these things of the Gaonim have no root in the Talmud. So clearly this was a Gaonic custom. And he says, he, he kind of downplays the authoritativeness of this. He says the Gaonim were extremely authoritative people, so they had the right to adjust the rules, to institute their own policies. He says they were, they were I don't mean he downplays the authority of the Gaonim, I mean that he downplays the universality of their ruling. He says the Gaonim, they were Gaon Eolam, they, they, were, they were to the whole Bnei Hagola like the Sanhedrin, they were the equivalent to the Sanhedrin, they had that much preeminence and authority. So this was a rule that they imposed, he says, on their authority, that they, they, they felt the need to tighten the screws on the victims of bands, they felt the need to put more teeth into it, so they instituted this as their own policy, they had the right to do that, he says, this was unique to their generation, this was not a universal, uh, not a universal standard custom, after their generation, we go back to the, to, to, to the din of the Gemara, and we don't adopt all these stringencies that are not on the Gemara. Ramah, however, Ramah, however, writes that he writes more generally, based on various poskim, various rishonim. He writes, "It's true these things are not on the Gemara. It's true that these things are not standard halachas of uh, people placed under the ban. These are not automatically triggered by a ban because these are not integral and uh, standard parts of the halachas of bans." However, he writes, "Rama writes, Basin has rishus. They have the authority to expand the force of the ban by these measures. Basin has rishus lahachmer alav." They should, they, not, that his children should not be circumcised, not to bury the person himself, shall he cover him yomus, not to bury the person himself if he dies, it sounds like the Ramah, the Ramah brings, and he says, and to expel his kids from school, and Ishtam and Besakneses, as Mukha Yosef brought, and his wife from the synagogue, most of the formulations of the Gaonim do not mention his wife, they mention his kids, they don't mention his wife, but Mukha Yosef and the Ramah mention his wife as well, that we and, and those really are the two most shocking aspects of the Gaonic ruling. Not doing Mila sounds pretty serious also, but in addition, we expel kids from school and we, we suspend, expel, it's temporary, I guess, we'll take him back as soon as he uh, gives in, but uh, we suspend or expel the kids from school and we, uh, and, we, and we expel his wife from the shul until he gives in. It's an interesting question. I, I, right, the, the question is how, how regularly did women attend shul? So obviously it varied from, you know, and Tashkenazim, it varied from culture and from century. It's not a topic I'm really well versed in. However, in Yana de Yoma, this time of the year, it, in certain communities, at least in Ashkenaz, it, it was actually quite common that women did go to shul. So there's a, there's a famous ruling, I think, of one of the later German postcoms, I think he writes, 
There were certain customs that, that, that women didn't go to shul during certain times of the month when they had their periods and so on, they, that they didn't uh, get involved in Varm Shavik Dusha. The says, they do go to shul, he says, because everyone goes and they would feel so left out if they didn't go. It would be such a hardship for them not to go, so we suspend those rules. Those rules are not generally followed today at all, but in the time of the medieval period they were, that the women didn't normally go when, when, when they were Tameos and so on, but those rules were suspended during Yom Naram because shul attendance was such an integral part of life that the, even for women, that the women would have, felt, uh, mm-hmm. would have felt really bad if they couldn't go. So there is evidence that women did go at least to, to some shul. How often they went, and, uh, and the scholars, I'm sure, have studied this, uh, gathered evidence of how often they went, what time of the year, Svardim versus Ashkenazim, so I don't know. We also met... Um, so... Yeah. So, right, well, the Gaonim were really the pre, pre, pre-Svardim and Ashkenazim. Right, the, 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 the Rishon the, the who, who bring the Gaonim, a number of them were Svardim, the Rivash, uh, Rivash in North Africa, and the Spain in North Africa, I think, and Yosef, they, they were Svardim. Ramo was, of course, Ashkenazi. We're about to discuss a bunch of the Polish postkim on the topic. But, uh, yeah, we, we know for sure, in, in the era we're about to discuss, the late 16th century, we know that uh, shul going was a thing for, for Ashkenazic women. We mentioned a few weeks ago, we were talking about Rebetzin Bela Falk, the, the, the wife of Rabbi Yeshua Falk, in the turn of the 17th century or so, he, who his, her son relates about her that she went to shul every day, she was the first one in, at least to the women's section, the last one out, and she, she prayed there and, and learned there, she learned Torah there. There, there were women's sections. They did attend. Uh, again, how regularly and how it compares to today, you know, again, right, the scholars, I'm sure, have tried to reconstruct it, but there was apparently at least some, some attendance of shul, and it was, it was considered apparently, as per the Truman's National, it was considered a hardship for the woman to be expelled. She would be, either, either she would feel religiously, uh, religiously stressed or she would feel socially uh, ostracized. So one way or another, this was considered a form of pressure to expel the woman from shul. So the marshal... Marshal was a contemporary of the Ramah, older contemporary of the Ramah, and uh, one of the outstanding Polish postkim of his time, along with the Ramah. Mm-hmm. Marshal was very, very unhappy with this ruling of the Gaonim. The Marshal was a famously independent authority. He was, uh, the Marshal famously writes in his introduction about how it's a, it's a great uh, weakness of mind, he says, that we don't have enough intellectual independence. People think just because something's written down in a book, you have to accept it. Any, anything for a previous generation has to be venerated and uh, accepted without question. It's not the way we learn Torah, he says. Everyone has the right to an opinion, and I have my opinions also, he says. So in this case, Marshall demonstrates his intellectual independence, and he is very, very unhappy with this ruling of the Gaonim. First, like the Beis Yosef, he just said that all these rulings of the Gaonim, you know, the Mila and the Kfura, are all beyond the bounds of the Talmudic rules. So all of this, he says, is, uh, is, is puzzling, he says. And he claims that the Gaonic ruling is not brought by, by most of the other Rishonim. Others point out, yeah, what do you mean it's not? Of course it is. It's brought, it's, it's brought by, the Chamsover points out, it's brought by, it, it, it's brought by, it's brought by numerous Akron. He says it's, uh, we, as, as we've seen, as, as we mentioned, there, there are, uh, as we mentioned, there are, there are, there are, there are, there are, there are, there are many Rishonim who bring this, uh, many Rishonim who bring this, uh, bring this ruling of the Gaonim. I'm sorry, the Shavis Yaakov is the one who says that. So he says that the... But the Marshal says he thinks this is a minority opinion. He thinks others don't accept the ruling of the Gon. Maybe like the Beis maybe the Gon only meant a local custom. The Gon didn't mean a universal rule. But then he takes particular issue, particularly acute issue, with the rulings about women and children. He says, expel the kids from school? 
Chalila, he says, Chas v'shalom. Talmud tells us that the whole world uh, survives because of the, the pure Torah, the Hevel P.M. Shaltinokos. We should back that, he says. What about Mila? He says, good. Mila is primarily a mitzvah of the father, burying dead. Primarily, it's about the, it's about the person who's alive. It's his duty to take care of his, uh, his relatives and so on. Okay, so that's a form of putting pressure on the, on the recalcitrant individual. Talmud Torah of the kids, he says, is no tashlumen. You miss a day, God says, I move away from you for two days. Pshito, pshito, he says, less time of the milsa to expel a kid from school, he says, out of the question. Marshall is concerned largely with Torah. If you were just expelling him from his uh, general studies classes, I'm not sure if the Marshall will be quite as upset. He does focus on Talmud Torah, but certainly, he says, expelling a kid from Beisefer, which in Poland and 400 years ago meant Torah school, school where they learn Torah, is unthinkable, he says, chas v'shalom to do such a thing. Expelling... Sorry? Are they talking about um, a situation where they're trying, where someone's done something bad in the past and there's a punishment? Are they talking about a, that they want yeah. to so, force an action? So that, 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 that's, a very, that, that's a very important question. Nidoy, the cheyrim, was used in, in general in two contexts. Some of it was just a form of punishment, and some of it was a form of coercion. It was a form of getting someone to back down. As we'll see from various sources, the Nidri was used in both cases, but the primary focus of the postkim that we're studying now, I believe, is pretty clear that it was on the coercive aspect. It was not about punishment, it was about uh, breaking his will to resist. So yes, it was pr- primarily about coercion. Now we're going to see, that's why I think some of the postkim justify it like that. It's not about punishment, where collateral, pu- collateral punishment is not, collective punishment is not legitimate. It's about coercion, where they fail, the, where they fail that uh, we have to have more tools at our disposal. Right, so we'll, we'll see more of that soon. So the Marshal said, the Torah of children is out of the question. Similarly, he says, throwing the woman out of the shul, he says, Harry focuses not on the spiritual value of shul attendance, he says, she's innocent, he says, just because he's behaving badly, why is it his wife's fault? The wife of Achan, he says, the Gemara said, they didn't kill the wife of Achan, we mentioned last week. They brought her there to witness the punishment of her husband, but they didn't, it doesn't even say they brought her there. Her wife is not even mentioned there, it says. It says the, the children are mentioned, but the, the, the basic claim, the basic argument, the, the moral argument we discussed last week, it's not her fault, he says, you know, just because her husband is, uh, is behaving badly, why should she suffer? Again, he's focusing on the, the humiliation, the social humiliation, to, to shame her like this by throwing her out of shul for her husband's misdeeds. This is so unthinkable, he says, so outrageous, he makes the classic suggestion that it was, this is not an authentic tshuva. He just can't even accept that this is, a, this is an accurate tshuva. Then he reiterates his, his bottom line. He says he's willing to accept the other sanctions of the gon, like the mila and the kfura, not to do mila and kfura. He says those he can accept if based and sees fit. They can impose, uh, teach him a lesson, they can do that. But he says to his wife, he says, if, if, if she's not complicit, if there's no evidence of her malfeasance, he says, pshito, pshita, it is completely obvious, he says, it is entirely self-evident, we cannot make her suffer directly, at least in any way. Again, Rachel Lancha's point is that she may suffer just by the excoriation of her husband. That already, we, we, we have no choice in. But to directly impose punishments on her, no such thing. To expel his kids from the base medrash, he says, or from yeshiva, chalila v'chalila. And he says there was once an actual case, Pamachas, he says, when he was a young man, that uh, he, once got a, he once got a letter, an instruction from a certain senior 
senior Gadol Batari says, to expel the son of someone who had been placed under the ban from his yeshiva. Marshal apparently had the child of such a person in his yeshiva, and somebody ordered him to expel the kid. Because I, I ignored him. I, I, I blew him off. I felt I was completely wrong. I did not do that. I refused to expel, to make the child suffer for the sins of his parents, to move to his Torah. So the Marshal rejects the... These two things in particular, expelling the, the women and expelling the children, Marshal says, out of the question. To directly impose punishment or coercion to, upon someone who didn't do anything wrong is just not right, and we cannot do that. Even B'nini Adam, the Tzor Tom and Paolo, but this, to directly impose consequences on someone who didn't sin, even as leverage over the person who did, unthinkable. Also, the question about Kura. So, I, I mean, in, in Masachet Sanhedrin, it explains that, you know, that if, if somebody was a known sinner, they wouldn't be buried in a regular cemetery, but there's a sort of special, like, extra cemetery for people who were clutching. Right. And it's not that they didn't bury him, they just buried him in this other section. So, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that... Right. It, awesome? it, it, it's certainly true that they generally buried even Chotim, even, even people who basically executed were buried, they were hanged and then buried. Yeah, so the, the idea of not burying someone seems uh, incredibly draconian. Yeah, and, and we'll, discuss, we'll discuss more about this Kvura thing, this Kvura thing as well. So the Taz, we'll get to that now also, Taz writes as follows. The, the, the Taz goes on the, the Marshal. He says... He says, the marshal is asking uh, on the question of women and children, the Taz should have asked on Kvura as well. We know from all the halachas of burial and the treatment of a mace, the mace has to be treated respectfully. That, 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 that's not just a mitzvah. We look at that, we ask Mechila from the, from the mace if we don't treat him respectfully. A mace is considered to have the right to be treated with dignity. It's considered a terrible, terrible thing to mistreat a mace and not to bury him and to treat him to be Zion. So ask the same question on burial. How, how do you have the right not to bury a mace? He says, uh, what kind of business is that? He says, that the, so if the Marshal is right, that, the, that this is a real question, yeah, and Marshal sounds right, so what's the deal with Kvura? Kvura is also hard to understand. The Taz says, and this harks back to what we said last week as well, the Taz says, we're talking about minors, where the mace in question was a minor, a minor, a child who died, Ch- children, the, they, they, they had no problem understanding the children are considered uh, accessories, adjuncts to their parents. Children are tluyim v'omdim b'schush aviyam, And that's why you can push off the kfur. Again, the, the language is la'akifa kfur. I think the assumption was we wouldn't let him sit unburied forever. We were hoping this was a short-term thing where he'd eventually back down. I'm not sure what happened if, if the short-term turns into long-term. He's still not backing down whether you permanently leave him unburied or this was just something we would do for... Uh, a few days or weeks, I'm not sure. But the, the Taz says, we're not talking about, 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 about adult children, he says, and the same thing applies to expelling them from school, he says. Uh, the, the, we're talking about Kitanim, who are considered just as ancillary to their parents, and not really uh, people who have their own rights. Again, we mentioned last week, this is not at all the way we look at children today. Today we look at children typically as full-blown human beings with full rights and full independent rights, and on the, con- on the contrary, they're, they have more rights because they have no notion of guilt. There's no concept of guilt for a child. So he has all the rights and none of the responsibilities, none of the possible guilt and consequences, but in, um, in, in the classic sources in Amritsar, they, they sometimes are willing to treat children as just really adjuncts to parents, and therefore it didn't bother the Taz as much if we were going to punish children by not burying them, by depriving them of the ability to go to school. For some kids, that would not be a punishment, but for the, the assumption is it is a punishment for them, but the, but the Taz uh, says they're children. 
they get swept up in their parents. That's how, we, that's how some of the Mepharshim seem to understand Erenidachas, we kill children for that reason. But wife, the Taz says, an adult wife, certainly he says, there, there, he agrees to the Marshal. There, the Marshal is absolutely correct. An adult human being, to, to punish a wife for the sin of her husband, he says, that is absolutely not. We have no right to, uh, to humiliate the wife because of the sins of a husband. And that much, at least, he agrees to the marshal. So he fundamentally agrees to the marshal's moral question, how can you punish Ruvain for the sins of Shimon? He just makes an exception for minor children, and that, that's what the Gunnim were talking about. But he largely agrees with the marshal. The Shus Yaakov, another early Polish, uh, Polish or German posik, he was asked about a very curious case. He was asked about someone was uh, Afkarusa, guilty of grave disrespect and flouting the community, neged akahol, neged das tarasenu. He was against the Torah, against the community. He became a moser. He became uh, an informer, a terrible thorn in the side of the community. He's chayav nidu, he's chayav shamta. He's the, the worst of the worst. Uh, everything we, we, we let loose, everything we have against him. One possible bit of leverage we have is that this person had a daughter. The daughter was married. She was presumably uh, not a minor, but, uh, but, but uh, presumably an adult, halachic adult. She was, uh, she was married. She was a widow. She was widowed. Her husband died without children. She needed chalitza. Can Bastin use withholding chalitza as a form of pressure on the father to get him to, again, the, the, the issue wasn't, uh, like your question before, the issue wasn't just punishment. The way he phrases it was, until the person agrees to accept the, the, the authority of the community and the Bastin to accept whatever they want him to accept, can they use the withholding chalitza as leverage against the father to, uh, they had nothing else, I guess, that was working against him to get him to, to back down? Can they, can they use his daughter as a, vulner, as a vulnerability of his? The, the vulnerable position of his daughter, can they use her as a pawn, essentially, in their struggle against the father? So the Shuz Yaakov begins, of course, with this ruling of the Gaonim. He brings uh, all these different medieval, medieval citations of the Gaonim. And medieval, later medieval, the early Akronim, the time of the early Akronim. And he says, and the, this is how the Beis Yosef and the Ramah Paskin, I'm not sure what he means by Beis Yosef, but he says this is how the, 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 the codifiers Paskin. I saw the Marshal, he says, that Postkin don't bring it. What do you mean Postkin don't bring it, he says? This Aliman of Divriat Postkin, Shevesi, they do bring it, he says. Then he has these questions about how is it fair to expel children and the wife, he said. He says, Lamaisa, the halacha follows the Shulchan Aruch, not like the Marshal. Kids are able to be used as kids are able to be used as uh, as as pawns in the struggle against the parents. However, he says it's a great chiddush, and let's not take this too far. Aguna to make a woman into an aguna, he says. Chazal talk about the, how hard they work to avoid aguna. He says also if, by by not letting them do chalitza, then the the cholitz is not going to do his mitzvah of the of doing chalitza, which is a mitzvah for him, and he's losing a mitzvah. He's certainly not complicit in anything here. He's not, he's not even family. He's I mean, by marriage, I guess he's family, but he's not even uh, really family, he says. Kubalim tell us that the chalitza is good for the soul of the departed person, so it's against his interest. It's against the woman's interest, her dead husband's interest, the chalitza's interest, he said. Even though we don't usually follow Kabbalah, he says, in halacha, because halacha has its own rules, but here he says, it's anyway, this whole thing has no makar and poskim. The Gaonim said it, he says, but the, the, the Gaonim said it, it's okay, so maybe we can do these specific things about expelling or suspending from school 
and about uh, expelling the wife from the shul, but to start letting the, 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 the daughter be made into uh, an aguna in the, in the, in the, as a pawn of the struggle against her father, that we don't find in the Gaonim, he says, so that much we're not going to go. So even though he's willing to accept the Gaonic ruling about expelling kids and, expe- and expelling the woman as, uh, from shul as binding, to let the woman's chalitza be used as a, as, a, as a cudgel against her father, he says, that he can't stomach, that he says we're not going to do. Unless, of course, he says, unless the woman herself is involved in whatever her father's doing wrong, unless she's complicit as well, then of course, yeah, then of course we can sanction her with whatever tools we have at our disposal. But assuming she's, assuming he, she's innocent, he says, and assuming we just want to use her as a pawn in our struggle against him, that we're not going to do, despite the ruling of the Gaonim, which he thinks we should accept, it's the halacha, he says, we're limited to what they actually talked about, we're not going to start allowing all kinds of other diabolical... Uh, diabolical uh, pressure against the woman. So when it comes to withholding chalitza, he says that we are not going to do. We are not going to allow uh, chalitza to be withheld unless she's actually guilty. We're not going to allow the chalitza to be withheld. With, uh, withholding chalitza is the equivalent of, is, is fu- functionally, largely, functionally largely similar to withholding again. A woman can't remarry until she has chalitza. It's uh, not as serious if she remarries. It's not adultery, but chalitza is not allowed to remarry without chalitza. In practice, it makes her an agunna. So that's something he says, that, that's such a, a, a drastic step that he doesn't think, even according to the Gaonim, that's not something we can countenance. Chasim Sofer, Chasim Sofer talks about this question as well. He says, he, he has a tshuva discussing various uh, variations of this question, but in the, in the course of his analysis, he, he discusses directly the, the marshal, marshal's kashas on the Gaonim, how can you punish kids for the sins of their father? How can you uh, punish the woman for the sins of her husband? So he says that the he doesn't have an entirely, at least in my understanding, an entirely satisfactory explanation, but he says that the, the father has great schos if his children learn Torah. He says if his children observe the Torah, if they study Torah, they go to school and study Torah, that's a great schos for the father. And we don't want the father to have this great schos, so we expel his kids from school. What about the suffering of the kids? They can't go to school. Again, many kids will, will tell you that they're not actually suffering so badly if they don't go to school. But the halacha views that as uh, presumably as suffering, not having the chance to study Torah. My son actually, I think, would consider it uh, suffering not to go to school. He likes school. He likes his friends are there, but uh, learns Torah there. But, you know, okay. but the, the halacha views not going to school as a punishment. So he says something very curious. He says, the halacha is that if a person intends to do a mitzvah, and is prevented from doing so by circumstances beyond his control, Hashem still rewards him. Hashem, in his Midas Sarachamim, still says that you tried to do a mitzvah, you couldn't, it's not your fault, you still get schar for it. We discussed this recently in other shirim we gave, that there, there are chuvas about someone who found his tefillin were puzzled after years of wearing tefillin. Is he considered to have been, it's not his fault, I mean, he's not mechuyiv to check your tefillin, but is he, is, he, is, he, is he considered to have forfeited the mitzvah for all those years? The various poskim, including Rav Asher Weiss, contemporary authority, various poskim say no, because we have this rule, Chazim Sofer says, if someone means to do a mitzvah and tries and makes his best efforts to do a mitzvah, and through circumstances beyond his control, he can't, Hashem still gives him schar for, for doing the mitzvah. So the, the children will still get schar. They, they, as far as they were concerned, they tried to go to yeshiva. They were willing to learn. Basin didn't let them. So you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry that, they, that they're not going to get schar. 
It's the it's, it's very hard to understand because even if they're not going to get even if they're going to get schar and olam haba, they're going to go through life without Torah, without without knowledge. I mean, it, it's still a life without without Torah. Is that really equal to someone who is? Uh, you know, we don't say that all all the children all over the world who who unfortunately weren't brought up to be to know Torah and to do mitzvahs. We don't say let's just leave them all alone because not their fault. So they're all going to get lots of schar. It doesn't work like that. It's still our job to try to give them the actual Torah, not just the schar, because they would have learned Torah had they been able to. We try to give them actual Torah, which is not the same thing as they had good intentions, and they, maybe we don't punish them for that, but still it's, a, it's surely greater to actually learn the Torah. Okay, but this is what the Chassam Sofer says, that the, the punishment upon them is not really so bad, because since they wanted to learn, the woman as well, she, wants to, she wanted to go to shul, she wanted to engage spiritually with her creator, Basin prevented her, Hashem will still reward her for it. Again, he's not addressing the other Akronim said, the problem is the humiliation. Forget the, forget the spiritual deprivation. The problem is the, the shame she's going to suffer from being told you're, you're not wanted here. The way the Taz put it, he says, Ancient tabla vazosa, the, 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 how can you humiliate her? The language of the Marshal about the woman in particular, the, the children he focused on, the value of the Torah. But the woman, he said, was, well, Levayesh Bas Yisrael. The humiliation it is, whether we, even, if, even if no one thinks she technically did anything wrong, you can't argue that she's going to be terribly humiliated by being denied the right to go to shul. She's going to be socially cut off from her friends, from the, from the, the life of the community. And so it's, uh, it, it, I don't know if they have the same kind of kiddush as we have today or not, but, uh, but, she, but it clearly was humiliation. So the Chamsofer is kind of ignoring all the talk about uh, actual humiliation, just focusing on the, on the question of the of the, the, the schar and the mitzvah and how Hashem is going to reward him and he says uh, and she shouldn't have to worry Hashem will reward her so again I, I, I don't fully see that this is such a satisfactory answer but that is what the that is what the that's what the Marshall says she wanted to do the mitzvah she tried even if she uh, even, e- 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 even if she was unable to Hashem will still Hashem will still reward her this, yeah um, woman could be placed in Nida as well. The, the, some of the, I think, rules are a drop different, but I believe the Nida can, can, be, can be implemented against well, it's women. Just right. Right. Well, in, 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 in this case, we were doing it as uh, the husband was certainly being kicked out of Shul, but uh, the husband, I think, there's no question he's being no, kicked out. Oh, yeah, you mean the, the reverse situation? If, the, if, if it's the woman who behaves, uh, who behaves badly, would we expel her husband from Shul? Yeah, that's a fascinating question, right. If it's, uh, you know, so the, right, if, if it's just a question of social pressure, then, then, then quite likely the social pressure would still apply, that she would presumably feel pressure by having her husband excluded from shul. If, if we look at the woman as kind of as an adjunct to her husband, so then the, 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 that may not be a symmetric thing. And then, but yeah, but that's a good point. The, 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 they do not use language here of the woman being any kind of children. They, they, they have this language that she's a kind of appendage of the, of, of the parents, but they do not use that language about children here. They, they just focus on the fact that it's an effective means of coercing a spouse, so quite likely it would work in, re- in the reverse direction as well, that uh, putting the screws on the husband would be an effective means of pressure in all likelihood on the woman as well. Yes, yeah, so that makes sense. I didn't see that explicitly, but it certainly makes sense that they would have done that in reverse as well. Archa Shulchan also accepts this ruling that we expel kids and we expel the, the spouse, if, if the, the woman, if necessary, he says, he says, and he makes the exact distinction that you brought up earlier, the distinction is between punishment and between uh, and between coercion. He says, if the if they're doing it, in order to secure compliance with the, with the din, with the will of the basin, if they think it'll be effective, they can do that. 
We don't just punish children for the parents. We don't just punish the woman for her husband, even, even minor children. And that's the answer. He says, we're doing it to We're doing it to accomplish something. If we, we don't do it as punishment, we do it if we think we can accomplish some concrete goal. If we're trying to accomplish a goal, again, it, it's still morally hard to understand why a woman should suffer, why children should suffer, even if Basin is trying to accomplish something. But again, as we saw last week, the, 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 there's a general attitude we find in certain, it's not, it's not the common approach, but there is this attitude we find in a number of different contexts that sometimes the individual rights are set aside in, in, the, service of the, in the service of the goal of the Basin to accomplish something that it feels is, that it feels is crucial. So again, in, in practice, you know, we don't really do need to do it today. In practice, expelling kids uh, is, is something that you certainly have to take with a, uh, it should be a very, very, one, one, should, one should think long and hard before one drags kids in as pawns against the, against the struggle against parents. But as we've seen, the, the, the halacha often has, uh, has a value system which is different from what we would expect. And this is one uh, remarkable issue. Again, Rabbi Charles Salanter goes so far as to say, that in God's justice, he doesn't even punish where there'll be indirect consequences for the kids. And Basin does. The fact that Basin punishes where there'll be indirect consequences, like the family lost its breadwinner, that already is established halacha. The, the, this idea, though, that Basin sometimes will, will explicitly and directly punish or, or, or impose sanctions on someone in an attempt to, uh, to break the will of somebody else, that is a, a, is a very controversial doctrine. On the one hand, it's a gonic ruling, and some poskim Shmos Yaakov or Chashulchan Chasim Sofer accepted Rama. On the other hand, there, there were those like the Marshal and the Taz who said, "How can it be? How can you punish? Uh, it's, uh, how can you? How can you impose sanctions on someone for something he didn't do? Minor children. There was a little more of an argument. Even that is hard to understand. And certainly, an adult woman. We have some poskim who, who it might be the minority view, but there are major poskim who insist that it's just it's just not right. You can't possibly impose sanctions on someone." For, uh, for someone else's sins, even if you have a concrete goal of, of coercing his, his complaints.